this series in exile, and when we're looking at the letter or the book in your Bible of First Peter. And if you want to turn to the better, the book, the better, the book or letter, First Peter in your Bible, you are welcome to. It's towards the back of your Bible, the towards the end of the New Testament. And this is a letter written from Peter the Apostle to churches scattered all over what is modern-day Turkey. And Peter is writing to these churches who are undergoing persecution. And as we read this letter, we are trying to ask, how do we read this as people who are navigating a post-Christian America in the 21st century? Obviously, this letter was not written to 21st century Americans, but there is a lot to be said to 21st century Americans from this letter. So we're asking, as we read 1 Peter, what does this say to 21st century Christians who are trying to figure out how to navigate a post-Christian America? And what we mean when we say post-Christian America is that we are transitioning in a massive shift in our nation's history and really in world history out of Christendom in which the world just sort of operated with Christianity as the norm, at least the Western world did. And we're moving into a time where, where Christians, particularly in America, we have historically been the center of culture. We have been the central influencers in what happens for our society. And we are moving from the center to the margins. Right? And when we were in the center, there were certain assumptions that we could make about biblical literacy, about people's familiarity or participation with church, about certain moral values and behaviors, expectations about family life, things that, that society held as good virtues. We could express our faith publicly in certain ways, and everybody just sort of accepted that that was normal. That's what you do when you're at the center of culture. We're not there anymore. And we are moving more and more to the margins. And at the margins, you find yourself in an increasingly hostile world that does not like you. So the dominant group now views you as an outsider, as a foreigner, as a minority that is a, 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 a nuisance. And so in the margins, Christians can expect an increasingly anti-Christian bias, particularly in the realms of academics, politics, and media. And we're experiencing that. And we sort of acknowledged last week that there are two demographics that exist in our churches right now. And it's a fascinating moment because these two groups of people exist. There, there's one group of people that feel like this has happened overnight and the other that feels like this is the way that the world has always been. Because we've grown up in completely different worldviews. And so we look to First Peter to ask, how do we navigate this? And First Peter is a great letter because it is written to Christians that are suffering and whose suffering is increasing because of their faith. Because they follow Jesus, because they are disciples of Jesus, their lives are becoming harder. The world around them is increasingly more anti-Christian every day. And so Peter encourages these Christians and tells them, this is how you should navigate life. That sounds like a great thing for us to look at as we are trying to figure out how to navigate life in a world that feels increasingly not Christian. And so what we, what we said is Peter starts the letter by calling them exiles. 
right? He writes in the first couple verses, he says that he introduces himself and he says, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, right? And, and we recognized last week that that word exile doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but it meant a ton to the audience he was writing. And he was calling them back to a, por- a portion of their history as Jewish people in which they were exiles, Multiple times, the people of God were conquered by outside armies, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And when those two armies came in, they went to the Jewish homeland. They took the best and brightest from those places, and they dragged them back to their own empires. They took them a place where they had been settled for hundreds of years, where they had cultural norms that were based on their faith. They had a way of life that operated because of their faith in God. Even if they didn't practice them perfectly, everybody sort of understood what we do and why we do it. It's based on God. And they found themselves overnight taken to a place that said, we don't like any of that. It is nonsense. You are now a minority. We can oppress you if we want to. You do what you're told. They find themselves in exile. This is not a fun place to be. Yet, God is aware of what's happening in exile. And and there are people who would grow up in exile in the Jewish nation, right? There are people that would literally be taken there overnight and they would look around and they would say, how did this happen? How did we get here? When did the world start to look like this? Who took my home? And then there would be another generation that would grow up and they would say, this is Babylon and Babylon is home. And that's the world that we're living in right now. We have two demographics of people, people who would say, where did Christian America go? And another that would say, this is the America that I've always known, right? Regardless of when we got here, regardless of of whether we recognized it was coming or not, how do we live in Babylon? If this is different, if the rules have changed, if the landscape has changed, how are we supposed to follow Jesus in exile? How do we navigate a post-Christian America? How do we raise our kids in Babylon? How do we raise grandkids in exile? Those are big questions. Those those are very high-stakes questions to be asking. It's important that we pursue the answers. And so, 1 Peter is a great place to look because he is writing to a people that find themselves living in a world that is increasingly anti-Christian every day. And he says their posture needs to be, you're in exile. You are in Babylon. And so remember how you were supposed to live in Babylon. And what we looked at last week is that God told his people in exile when they were in Babylon is, is don't fight against them. Don't start a war. That will not end well for you. Don't fight. Also, don't fold and just accept what the Babylonians do. Don't become one of them. You were always meant to be different as my people, and so look different. Don't fold and just become them. Instead, be faithful. Be faithful in Babylon. Trust me, I am very aware of what's happened. I have a very good plan and it's going to happen in my time. And that may look different than your time. So in your time, live faithfully. Some of you will never see Jerusalem again. 
You're going to live the next 70 years in exile. You're going to raise kids who will live their whole life in Babylon. But that doesn't change my goodness. It doesn't change my plan. So how do we live in Babylon? We're going to start in Peter where we're going to end today. And maybe that's a little bit confusing, but I promise it will make sense at the end. So chapter 2, it's not a long book. It's not hard to to find your way around. The first few verses of chapter 2 is where we're going to start and where we're going to end. Peter says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Man, y'all are using that Bible app today, and that guy is talking. (laughs) I can pick on somebody because it was my mother-in-law. Love you. (laughs) I don't know who you were, but I don't get to pick on you by name. Um, Anyway, uh, (laughs) sorry, ADD. Uh, I'm just going to take a drink while this train's coming off the rails anyway. So... Peter starts out by saying, rid yourselves of hypocrisy, envy, malice, envy, all of that stuff. And he says, and be like newborn babies. And Peter is not saying to this church, be like babies. He's not saying be immature in your faith. That's not at all what he's saying. Not, don't be spiritual newborns. Don't, don't just stick to the elementary things of your faith. I am trying really really hard, but it's happening again. If you can't hear it, like Bible app is talking. I love that guy's voice, but, um, and I love that you're in your Bible. Please don't, don't stop going there. Just, yeah. Um, think. Okay. He's not saying be immature in your faith. He's not saying be babies, but he's saying take a lesson from babies. And I know that we can talk about this illustration as a church because y'all are some of the most baby-having people that I have ever met. Like, if you have walked down our city kids' hallway, there are so many babies. It's just, it's great. We're trying to figure out, like, where do we put all these babies? And that's, that's a great problem to have. We love that problem, but we got to find some space for the babies. Stay tuned as we keep coming up with solutions and figuring out how do we fit all the little ones of our church in our church. But it's exciting. So y'all get babies. You're around babies. You volunteer with babies if you're not having them right now. But the thing that Peter is saying is what you should learn from babies is that babies don't tolerate bad milk. Right? If you have had a newborn, if that newborn has had milk, if you then try to give that baby water, that won't work. It will destroy their system. If you try to give a baby watered-down milk, it will let you know very, very quickly that's not the right stuff. Get something else because I can't have that. And so that's what Peter is saying. He's saying, therefore, because of everything that I'm going to say to you in chapter 1, take a lesson from babies and stop accepting watered-down truth. Because what Peter is going to tell them, and what we need to understand today, is that if we are going to survive in exile, our lives have to be centered around the gospel of Jesus. 
And it is not enough to just nod our heads when somebody talks to us and says something that sounds kind of like the gospel. Our lives have to be completely rooted in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. If they're not, you don't stand a chance in Babylon. Right? He, he's referring to the gospel that these folks were taught, that he himself knew they had heard. And he's saying that is what you have to hold to. That is what, if you have tasted and seen that that is good, don't settle for anything else. The world around you desperately needs the gospel and post-Christian America desperately needs the gospel of Jesus. And we know that because Christian America also desperately needs and needed the gospel. What do I mean by that? Let's unpack those two. What are the gospels that may not be complete that both of those hold to? What are the incomplete gospels of both Christian America and post-Christian America? Peter would call them to holy living. Right? He says in verses 14 through 16, he says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. That first verse of chapter 2 was describing holy living. That is the, what Peter's instruction to these churches is. Peter says, if you want to live in exile, you have to live holy lives. You have to live lives that look different. But before he goes on to all of the practical implications of that, he says, we have to first make sure you understand the gospel because your world desperately needs it. And your world does not understand the good news. And so everything we're going to say, you cannot live a holy life unless you really get the gospel. So post-Christian America, it's becoming increasingly secular, right? And, and secularization says that we don't need God at all. There's no need for the supernatural. There is no spiritual reality. There is just what we have in front of us that we can understand. And then the best we can do is to, to speak your truth, and we'll care more about your truth than we do the truth. And, and, and we're just trying to, like, make it through. Just you do you. Right? Individual sovereignty is the ultimate goal of happiness. If I can just get to a place where I can do whatever I want, then everything would be good. And my personal experience trumps everything. Right? Regardless of reason, regardless what, what thinkers have, have pondered for thousands of years, regardless what, what scripture or any other authority might say, my personal experience and how I feel about that experience is the thing that must be the focal point of my life. That's not the gospel of Jesus. I think most of us in here would acknowledge that. There is a much more dangerous half gospel that is at work in our churches, and that is moralistic therapeutic deism. And that's a term that was coined by, by researcher Christian Smith who works out of UNC. And, and in the book Almost Christian, 15 years ago, Smith had interviewed 3,000 teenagers in America who went to church, who professed themselves as Christian. And the team of researchers asked <clears throat> a whole bunch of questions to say, what is it that you actually believe? 
and through responses of thousands of teenagers, what emerged was what Smith called moralistic therapeutic deism. This is the faith of young people in America. And there are five components of moralistic therapeutic deism. The first is that there is a God who exists and who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Second, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, maybe you wouldn't say this in these exact words, but maybe you recognize it. Right? There is a God. He loves me very much. He wants me to feel good about me. And as long as I don't screw it up too bad, he's not going to send me to hell. Notice something that is not necessary for that belief system. It's Jesus. Jesus is not needed anywhere in moralistic therapeutic deism. God is something that helps us be the very best that we can be. To be exceptional people who feel less guilty about what we have done and who get to go to heaven. I think we could recognize that that might not be the gospel that Peter is describing, but it is a gospel that many, many, many people in our churches have bought into. Thank goodness we never had anything like that in Christian America. <laughs> Maybe we did. In Christian America, we had something called civil religion. And that was a, a phrase created by Robert Bella, who wrote an, an essay entitled Christian religion, or Civil Religion in America in 1967. It was actually Kennedy's inauguration that, that sparked him to write about this fascinating idea called civil religion. And what he describes civil religion as is civil religion in America has its foundations in Christianity, but is also composed of a public set of beliefs, symbols, and rituals that are neither sectarian nor in any specific sense Christian. Right? So in, in Christian America, there was sort of this idea, we are a Christian nation. We were founded on Christian principles. God has blessed America because we founded ourselves as a Christian nation. We have had success because we're a Christian nation. And being a good American is being a good Christian. And patriotism and faith get blended until we don't really know where one starts and the other begins. And as long as we do certain things, we're in, right? What does that mean? Here's how uh, Terry Coy, in describing Bella's assessment of civil religion, this is how he describes civil religion manifesting itself. He says, how has civil religion been manifested in America? Consider that traditionally we have prayed before athletic events, offered a generic prayer in the schoolhouse, placed both the Christian flag and the American flag at the front of the church sanctuary, pledged one nation under God, and printed in God we trust on our money. Furthermore, presidents and other elected officials take the oath of office with their hand on the Bible. Witnesses in the courtroom swear truthfulness on the Bible. All presidents from both parties have invoked God's blessing on America, speak of America's place in God's plan, and plead for God's protection when we go to war. 
Can you think of other things that might fit in those categories? Right? And it's not necessarily to say that every one of those things is bad or that every one of those things can't have Jesus in it at some point. But really what it becomes is a societal set of behaviors that we all agree to. And as long as we do those things, as long as at least publicly we adhere to all of the right moral standards and virtues and we're good patriotic people, we're in. Also not necessary in this form of belief is Jesus. Right? We can recognize God without actually recognizing Jesus. And Coy goes on to reflect on this idea. He says, A nation which prays generic prayers, appeals to a generic God, states that it trusts in a generic God, and flippantly thanks God for touchdowns and pop culture awards, regardless of personal lifestyle, may be called a religious nation. Doing doing these things, it might be argued, are better than not doing them. Still, The gospel is more than these public utterances and rituals. The kingdom of God is not this kingdom. Now, obviously, these two ideas are not representative of every person in any church in America. Right? We stand today on the shoulders of giants who deeply, deeply loved Jesus in a radically transformative way and also dearly loved their country. It's also true that there are tons of young people in our churches today who don't subscribe to moralistic therapeutic deism, and they deeply love Jesus and desire to see his kingdom made real in unbelievable ways. But if we're going to speak in generalities, these are both present in the American church. Both of these ideas fall short of the good news of Jesus. Neither of them is complete. Neither of them are really good news. Neither of them need Jesus to function. And neither of them is enough for Babylon. Neither of them will sustain us living in exile. So what is the gospel that we need in a post-Christian America? It's the same gospel the church in First Peter needed. Peter says in verses 17 and 19 of chapter 1, he says, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners or exiles here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He's saying, listen, the gospel says that you don't get a pass because of your heritage, your community, your country, or your family. The way of life that you inherited, the ideas that you have grown up with, whether they were good or bad, those ideas in and of themselves, they don't save you. The things that those ideas lead to, the things that you pursue because it is what you have grown up knowing, those don't save you. The only thing that saves you is Jesus. You are not redeemed by your performance, by your patriotism, by your politics, by your good behavior or your reputation. You are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. That's the good news that Peter is reminding them of. Verses 3 and 4 
of chapter one might be one of the the most succinct descriptions of, of the personal application of the gospel. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Right, regardless of what ideas you have grown up with, regardless of of the place in history that you live, the geography of where you are on the map, the nation that you find yourself in, you as a person, you have inherited sin. Right, You, you have earned death through sin. That sin that we have inherited from the generations before us, whatever form it has taken, it has wreaked havoc on our world, on our relationships, on ourselves. And the lies, the violence, the neglect, the pride, the greed, the selfishness that come with sin, they have separated us from a holy God. And the things that those ideas, those beliefs, those behaviors lead towards, it leads to death. That's what you have earned. Yet God is full of grace and mercy. God entered the picture as Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death on your behalf in which he paid the penalty for your sin that you had earned for yourself. He was killed and he conquered death. And in rising from the death, he ransomed you from the clutches that sin had on your life. And in his new birth from death, you have also been given a new birth from death. And that's not just something that starts one day in the future. In trusting Jesus because of his life, death, and resurrection, you have been invited into a new life. You have been born into a living hope. And a living hope is different than a set of intellectual facts. A living hope is different than than a a five-point list of things that a belief system subscribes to. You have been born into a living hope that is a part of an eternal reality in which all of creation is being redeemed, including yourself. A new kingdom is being started, and it is a kingdom that is far greater than any kingdom this world has ever seen. You are no longer citizens of the world in which you thought you lived. The country that you live in is not the ultimate country because there is a kingdom of God happening right beside and inside that country that is far greater. That is a country that you have been eternally invited into and nobody can take it away from you because it comes with Jesus. With Jesus, your past, your sin, it doesn't define you. It definitely doesn't define your future. Because of a living hope that you have inherited that cannot be taken from you, only grace and mercy and forgiveness define who you are in God's sight. That is the good news Peter is reminding this church of. He goes on to say, verses 23 through 25 of chapter 1, he says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. 
regardless of the world around you, there is one thing that does not change, that endures forever, and it is the Word of God. And the Word of God has a name, and that name is Jesus. Regardless of what the world around you does, Jesus does not change, and because he does not change, that changes everything else. That is a life-altering reality. And so we go back to chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Peter says, if you know that, if you have experienced a hope in Jesus that nothing else could offer, if, if you know that hope, if you've really experienced Jesus, don't settle for anything else. Don't take anything that is a watered-down version of that. You have to remember that every day if you're going to live in exile because it's a different game than it used to be. We can't just nod our heads and go along because the norms don't even remotely agree with Jesus anymore. And so it's not enough for just to just accept what somebody said. We have to identify what is the good news of Jesus and not be okay with anything else because there is nothing else that will last forever. Right? Exile is different. Babylon is different. Post-Christian America is different. And while that's scary, it's also not all bad. Russell Moore was speaking to a convention of Southern Baptists in 2013. He said, the Bible Belt is collapsing. The world of nominal cultural Christianity that took the American dream and added Jesus to it in order to say, you can have everything you've ever wanted in heaven too is soon to be gone. Good riddance. The game is different in Babylon but we get to find out whole new facets of who God is when we live in exile. God doesn't fit on a bumper sticker anymore. God doesn't fit in polite conversation. God enters complete brokenness and he radically transforms the world in ways that the world never saw it coming. That's what God gets to do in exile, but it doesn't happen if we don't really know who God is and what his good news is. And so, the question is, have you tasted that the Lord is good? Have you really experienced that Jesus is the best news ever? Right? We're not talking about civil religion with a set of moral codes anymore. We're not talking about moralistic, therapeutic deism that says Jesus is your best friend and as long as you don't do anything too bad, you're not going to go to hell. Do you really know Jesus? Because if you do, amazing things are going to happen in exile. 
the rest of the letter, the next two weeks, what we're going to look is, is Peter shows all the ways that life changes when we really know the gospel. Right? When we really know the gospel, it changes how we relate to neighbors, how we relate to government, how we relate to our coworkers, to our spouses, even to our enemies. Every person in our life becomes different when we really understand the gospel because there are implications of the gospel in every relationship we have. Our kids grow up with a Jesus that radically transforms lives because our lives look radically different as a result of him. Not because we have a new set of obligations to follow, but because we have been rescued and we have been invited into a living hope that no one else can offer. So have you tasted that the Lord is good? Is Jesus your rescuer? Is Jesus the one around whom your life is fixed. That's the Jesus Peter says you need. That's the Jesus I tell you you need. That's the Jesus we need in Babylon. If you haven't entered into a relationship with him, I think you should. Maybe you've been in church for a long time. And you said a prayer at some point and you've just been showing up trying to keep all the right behaviors in check. That's not the invitation that Jesus extends. Jesus invites you to a completely different way of life. And if you have not experienced that, I invite you to ask Jesus for a fresh start today. Say, I want that kind of life. A life that even in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, I can find peace and joy because you are the best thing I've got going. I want that kind of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being good. Lord, thank you that you have invited people like us into your kingdom. Lord, exile is, is a scary place. It is different. And it feels like the rules have changed and we've got to learn on the fly. But Lord, you're in the midst of all of it. You are not caught off guard by any of it. And you are faithful. And Lord, regardless of anything else that we might put our trust in, you are going to endure forever. Lord, a hundred, a thousand, three thousand years from now, America will fall. I pray I don't ever get to see it, but it will happen. Yet, God, on that day, your word will still endure. And so, Lord, may we put our hope in that. May we put our hope in that above anything else. And, Lord, may that transform how we do everything else. Jesus, it is in your holy, amazing, precious name we pray.